2: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week we'll be talking to researcher and writer Mike Berners-Lee about climate change. First though, as ever, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Deputy Editor Steve Bloomfield and our Arts and Books Editor, Samir Rahim, to discuss the latest in politics and culture. Steve, politics first. You're filling in for Alex, who sadly poorly and missing all the high drama in the Commons, but you want to tell us that we shouldn't be fretting quite so much about the Commons at all.
3: Indeed. I mean, obviously, Brexit is dominating, uh, unfortunately, many of our thoughts at the moment. It's certainly dominating the news agenda. But there are lots of other... uh issues bubbling under the surface. And one of those that I think isn't getting much attention at the moment is the crisis in education. And it really is a crisis. There there simply isn't enough money. We're hearing about schools who, that are closing early on Fridays, uh, about teachers having to buy equipment from their own pocket, uh, head teachers writing to parents asking them for money. And um, And on top of this, uh, at the same time, you had uh, a report out from Headteachers last week saying that schools are essentially the fourth emergency service now. That due to austerity, schools are having to provide food and clothing for children whose parents can't afford it. So at this moment where schools are having to do more than they've perhaps had to do before, they've also got less money and are struggling to do what they're supposed to be doing in the first place.
2: Is it really that bad? I've got two young kids at Hackney... um inner city school quite a nice school but it it doesn't seem like things are all that much different from what they were now I appreciate this could just be potluck but um I'm certainly not aware of anyone being sent home early because there's no teachers or anything but I know that's happened in some cases
3: it's happening in some cases yes and I think what we're seeing is the the start of Um, a lot of this little bits of anecdotal evidence becoming uh, a bit harder and turning really into data. You've had a lot of uh, teachers unions uh, and parents groups around the country uh, pointing out uh, issues they've got with funding at the moment. And I think it's one of those things that doesn't always necessarily make the headlines. But if you have uh, kids at a school uh, where this is happening, or if you you uh, you have grandchildren at a school where this is happening, uh, or if you are friends with a teacher where this is happening, you'll be hearing about this. Um, and it was interesting that uh, at the last election, one of the things that the Tories were really worried about. Um, in fact not just in 2017 but in 2015 as well was uh the idea of uh school teachers essentially campaigning uh, about the cuts that their school was suffering from and they realized that the conservative party realized this was a real fear that parents were getting information about how bad the school's budget was from the teachers and this might affect how they vote so even if it isn't actually dominating the headlines yeah you might be in a very fortunate position but i think a lot of parents and teachers listening may well recognize this story and won't need to have seen it on the front of the mail or the guardian
2: i think you've got teachers in the family as i have i mean do you hear firsthand that there's problems yes
3: absolutely um and whether that is you know talking to friends back in birmingham where i'm from originally where um, you know, for example, the the primary school that I that I went to is one of those that is uh, that is closing on a on a Friday afternoon. The senior management of the, that school took a ten percent pay cut. Um, because uh, they were in such dire straits. Now they're having to close early on a Friday. Uh, there was someone I was speaking to recently who was telling me that their school is going to have to make hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of cuts next year. So they're now trying to go through the budget line by line. You know, do we really need to spend this much on uh, photocopying? Do we need to get in uh, um, cover teachers uh, during lunchtime or should we do it ourselves? Um, you know, you've even heard stories You know, last week. There were stories on the radio about uh, head teachers who were uh, having to clean their own schools because they couldn't afford cleaners. Yeah, these are teachers as we've you know, discussed on this podcast before that are um, that are doing far greater hours than than yeah you know, many of us do in our jobs. It's not a job that yeah you know, ends at quarter past three when when the bell goes. Um, and they're having to do all this stuff on top, and it's reaching this moment I think where. Uh, it almost becomes unsustainable. The contrast, Samir, with the
2: NHS is an interesting one, isn't it? There's always the sense of an NHS funding crisis. Maybe it's an ageing society, because if you look back um, a generation or two, I think spending on health and education was similar, and now health spends much, much more.
4: Yes, it's interesting that we always feel like there is a crisis in the NHS, and there seems to be much more political pressure to uh, boost funding. Is it perhaps because the results of a, a health crisis are quite dramatic and then you get spikes in deaths? But, you know, if you get poor education, the results of that might not filter through for years and years and may have sort of future social problems or poor employment prospects that can't quite be measured quite as easily.
3: I think that's true. Yeah. And I think there's also a difference between how we see education, how we see the NHS which everyone or you know, most people in this country are very very protective of our NHS and what this means and you know, even if there's a, uh, a hospital trust in a part of the country you've never been to and have no connection to you worry about what's happening there if you hear a story about it because it's the NHS in a way that you might not worry about um, you know a school in a part of the country that, uh, that, that you're not from. I also think that there's a slight difference between how we understand these different crises when they become crises in that your own understanding of the NHS is based very much on, you know, your your interaction with it and uh, and your friends and family's interaction with it, unless there is a big political story. So if you don't have a big political story about the NHS your evidence for what's going on will be very anecdotal. Um, and I think with, with education, that might be, in my view, slightly different. Mm-hmm.
2: And the other thing, of course, we had a generation of um, reforms about like making schools more independent, more academies. So they've got more freedom, I guess, to do things now, like very hours, vary um, staff pay and terms. And certainly they would have done in the 1980s
3: yeah freedom means very little if you don't have the money to actually do that and at the moment i think these schools have the freedom to to make the cuts that they uh that they think they need to do rather than well should we uh you know should we have extra drama lessons but does or that
2: make it less politically um neuralgic if um they're all cutting in slightly different ways rather than it being one story about all the schools being cut in the same way
3: possibly yes um, in that it's not the you know it's not the Department for Education uh, you know it's not Damien Hines you know, a name I'm sure most people have had to Google to work out that he's the education secretary it's not Damien Hines saying you know every school is going to close on Friday afternoons or him saying uh, we're n- not going to have music anymore in the way that for example you know in the health service you might have well, not necessarily Matt Hancock, you would have, uh, you know, maybe sort of the head of an NHS trust saying, you know, we're going to have to close down this hospital or we're not going to have an A&E unit at this hospital. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a much bigger thing. there's more planning.
2: Let's um, move on to the horrific attack in um, Christchurch, where there's been an awful lot um, about the treatment of Muslims in the press and on social media. But Samir, you actually want to talk to us about something different, not the mainstream press, but portrayal of Muslims in arts and literature.
4: Yes, there's been a lot of discussion, I think quite rightly, about tabloid newspapers and even not just tabloid newspapers, um, how they portray issues relating to Islam and Muslim populations um in Britain. There's often the sense that um uh world of art and literature, literature in particular, has perhaps remained more immune from this kind of uh, prejudice um, than other forums, but I'm not quite sure if that's true. About 10 years ago, we had the sort of Martin Amis, Christopher Hitchens moment. Um, I was looking back at some of their videos, actually, um, them doing an event together, and it was just the contempt, really, dripping from every line. Whenever they talked about Arabs or Muslims, The idea that they could be sort of people with their own histories and personalities and complexities, as one would expect from people who were as intelligent as as those writers, um, didn't seem to cross their minds. I mean, there was an infamous Martin Amis interview when he talked about his thought experiment about how the Muslim community needed to be made to suffer. And that caused a little bit of a brouhaha, but then it sort of calmed down a bit and and no one seemed to worry about it or care much. But it's still happening, really.
2: Just on that, I mean, has it done for his reputation? It's a relief to me that he gets wheeled out a bit less than he used to to comment on everything.
4: Um, I don't think so. I think I think his reputation has gone down um, because he's written books which aren't as good. Um, I don't think it's particularly related to that. Well, what I found interesting, actually, it was a good sort of X-ray for me because he was a writer that I enjoyed reading, particularly when I was at uh, university. Um, but when you see, when you hear a writer almost sort of turning on, you or the community you come from it it gives you a jolt and and you then you start to reassess the books that you read before and you start to think well actually maybe he was always just writing caricatures of people but they just weren't people who uh you know i just didn't realize that, that that's what they were and uh so in fact it's a way of an author revealing themselves in some ways it even works at a sort of lower level there was a you know a Sebastian Falks, I remember watching him do an interview um, and he was uh, talking about how he was writing a Muslim character who I think becomes a terrorist. Um, uh, inevitably, Surprise. Um, uh, and he was trying to be understanding and helpful. And he said, well, what how, You know, so he asked, What did research did he do to find out about this? And he said, well, what I did was I took the Quran on a holiday with me and I read that very thoroughly. Um, and then I wrote the character based on on that. Um, and the idea that you could just really read a religious text and then just straightforwardly um, uh, uh, relay from that how a person might behave, what their history might be, what, how their personality might work, the idea that there are sort of, uh, you know, the Quran is a program that just Muslims get uploaded with and then it just sort of spits out whatever conclusions that can be easily predicted. Um, That was a very common... John Updike's Terrorist is basically exactly that as well. Um, But it hasn't really stopped because we had, uh, two or three years ago, uh, Michel Welbeck's Submission, which uh, is a novel that imagines um, a Muslim Brotherhood takeover of France in the quite near future, in fact. Um, And it's a sort of satirical attack at modern French liberalism, but... I thought it was a horrible book. I thought it was. uh, I felt almost disgusted reading it, and I'm I'm using that those terms uh, um, not lightly. Uh, The idea of um, a Muslim takeover of France is exactly the kind of thing uh, that referenced in the New Zealand shooters' um, uh, manifesto. The Great Replacement. He describes it as you know the way Europe is being taken over by um, uh, Muslims, apparently. Now, of course, you know, he's a writer. Ubel Becker's a clever man, and there's little levels of irony, and it's not necessarily the case that he endorses this worldview, but he's certainly playing with those motifs in a way that are not as clever as I think he thinks he is. But again, this was sort of lauded as one of the you know great novels that tells us the truth about the way Europe is going.
2: And do you think these um, kind of highbrow bigoted but highbrow kind of uh, thought experiments that, that you're talking about do you think they then do feed into the imagination through whatever direct indirect channel of the um uh, sort of white supremacist um terrorists or just thugs
4: well it's difficult to say isn't it because you don't want you got to be careful you don't want to say there's a direct connection between you know literary novel um and um uh, uh you know violent acts um you know what I would say is that um, this kind of feeling permeates essentially our entire culture and that literature uh, as a realm has not been immune from that. And maybe it can never be immune from that. And maybe it isn't a a, a, a realm in which, um, you know, people think very highly of themselves in the, in the literary and publishing world, that they're not prejudiced against anyone and they're liberal people. I had a, a discussion with a publisher about a year ago, and I was just talking to her about um, the phenomenon of the British Muslim novel, and I was wondering why there were just so few of them. There are about three million, more than three million British Muslims, but there are uh, very, very few novels published by people who are British Muslims. And she said, but no, of course, there's there's lots, there's loads. And I said, but but where, where are they? Um, and she couldn't really then think of any. It, in her imagination, there seemed to be lots of them being published. And then she mentioned Monica Ali, but I think that's 2003. Um, there's Nadim Aslam, who wrote, uh, you know, who still writes. Um, but um, I think there's also a related formula to this. I think um, we just had the anniversary of the Rushdie affair, which is 30 years on. We seem to celebrate that anniversary or market, as it were not celebrate, Um, mark that anniversary every five years or so. Um, It seems like such a a, a moment where um, uh, literature, Islam, British Muslims, terrorism, uh, threats of death, violence, all sort of meld into one so everyone can have their particular take on it. But it seems like that's the talking point we want to keep on going over again and again and again. We don't want to move the conversation forward and have...
2: For the Hitchens and the Amoses that you're talking about it was quite a foreign absolutely because he that? he
4: was their he was their close friend. I don't think Martin Amos thought about Islam or religion before that moment at all, and Hitchens didn't know Rushdie that well until they um sort of uh met up properly and were sort of um united by that by that moment um happily, I have to say that some things are changing slightly ever so slightly um uh, there's a there's a writer called Harun Khan who's written a book called The Study Circle uh published by dead Inc. press small public publisher um and it's about muslim lives in working class south london council estates similar to when he uh grew up um and it's a good it's a really interesting little novel and what's what's interesting about it is that it doesn't you know the characters don't become terrorists um the characters are not sort of performing um uh integration for uh, an audience that wants to be reassured uh, uh, that Muslims are just like us, uh, and uh, I'd advise you to pick it up. It's 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 it's, it's a really interesting novel. Uh, later this year, Aisha Malik uh, is uh, doing a sort of comic novel. I haven't quite read it yet, but it's called um, uh, "This Green and Pleasant Land." I think about a mosque that's being built in a in a village, country village. Well, uh, we may maybe yeah you will be yeah I mean. Uh, 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 yeah, so yes, I do. I do have a book out as well, but it, it's also a, it's a sort of phenomenon that um, maybe will change people's perspectives because I think literature is meant to be something that allows you to explore parts of the ask the deepest and darkest and most interesting questions about um, who you are and where you belong and, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, but if you're constantly fitted into a narrative where you're at a disadvantage because you you, you feel like you have to be explaining all the time or in a defensive mode all the time or campaigning all the time. I mean, there are quite a few books now out which are sort of more campaigny books about 10 essays about British Muslim women's lives or all the rest of it. And that's that's fine. But I think to really dig a bit deeper and to allow the freedom of the imagination to explore, uh, explore these um, untold stories, I think, um, would only be a good thing. Okay,
2: thanks very much to both of you. Now, on to the main event. We're talking carbon, global governance, and why there is no planet B. Over to prospect Stephanie Boland and author Mike Berners-Lee.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today.
0: Hi, Mike, and thank you so much for joining me. Maybe the best place to start is just if you tell me a little bit about your book there is no planet b and why you were so keen to write something that's both realistic but also optimistic about the fact there are things we can do about climate change
5: well you have to be realistic about the problem if you if you don't if you don't stare the full nature of the problem in the face you we don't stand a chance of solving it so some of the things that are going on and the extent to which for example um our carbon emissions curve is carrying on upwards in exactly the way that we might have thought it would have done, even if we'd never noticed that climate change was a problem. Facing up to that reality is really important because it tells us a lot about what doesn't solve the problem. And it tells us a lot about what we have to do in order to solve the problem. So you have to stare reality in the face. And I'm optimistic because it looks as though there's everything to play for. Uh, So if you look at all the kind of we've got all these global systemic challenges that we're up against at once you know climate change feeding the world biodiversity and a stack of other things and the really good news is that from a technical perspective there is no reason whatsoever why we can't deal with all of them um so there really is everything to play for but we have to ask ourselves uh very honestly what it will take for us to be solving those technically solvable problems
0: you do have this line don't you where you say if you want to create a problem that induces confusion and disbelief and the turning of blind eyes, it'd be hard to come up with something better than climate change.
5: Well, yeah, climate change is set to um, confuse us because it's, uh, uh, we're talking about invisible gases, we're talking about highly complex science, we're talking about the impacts that any one of us have in our has in our daily lives Um, having a very diffuse effect uh, around the whole planet. So you can't sort of, you can't track something you do to an impact that you see. It's 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 much more diffuse than that. And um, it's not happening, it doesn't happen in front of our eyes. The impacts that we're going to face happen in the future. So there's all kinds of uh, things about the nature of climate change that make it um, very hard for us to get an emotional reaction to.
0: Let's go back a little bit to the idea that there is something we can do. Because there does seem to be this idea now that people are saying, "Okay, let's really lay this out and really challenge policymakers to act on this. Um, Tell me a little bit about the idea of global governance that you write about and what needs to happen before we reach the stage where those plans are going to be put into place.
5: Okay, so if you look at the global carbon curve, you see that it's going up exponentially, exactly as we would have predicted it would have done if humans had never noticed that climate change was a problem. And that's kind of quite startling, um, especially when you consider all the talk and action and targets that there are around the world at, at every level. At the, at the national level, uh, we, we see businesses trying to cut their carbon. And we probably all know plenty of individuals who are doing at least something to try and cut their carbon. So how come we can't see even the faintest trace of a detectable change in that curve yet? It's difficult to imagine how it's going to be possible to reach the kind of agreements that are required without a sense that we are all on the same side. And I think it's difficult to imagine how that's going to be possible when we have such enormous levels of inequality, both within and between countries. So, um, and that inequality is very interesting because there's good evidence to say that um, beyond a certain level of wealth, uh, it doesn't actually do anything for your well-being to acquire even more wealth. So trimming down the inequality levels by, by, um, by trimming the very rich a little bit isn't actually going to cause anyone to suffer in the slightest. But what it um, does stand to do is create a platform in which some of the global arrangements that we absolutely have to have become possible.
0: I should say, I mean, hopefully this won't go out of date by the time we run this podcast, but we're speaking in a moment where we're on the brink of Brexit, and there's all sorts of questions for international cooperation across different fields, industries, fields of scientific research. How optimistic are you that we can have that global policy, evidence based response?
5: Well, we need to change our game quite a bit. We need to change and raise our game. At at the moment, the way we're doing international politics isn't fit for purpose. You could even say the way that we're doing economics isn't fit for purpose. There's a there's an awful lot of rethinking that is going to have to happen. Um, so I'm optimistic that that reworking of of the way we the way we kind of run the world uh, and the way we think about the world uh, is possible. But it won't happen through business as usual, and it won't happen through just kind of a few tweaks around the edges. Um, you know, we have entered this era that. Some people call the Anthropocene, um, which just to put it simply means it's an era in which suddenly humans are really powerful over the planet. And a hundred years ago, we weren't powerful enough to smash the whole place up. And 50 years ago, we were maybe powerful enough to do that if we really did something stupid. And now we're, at a, in, we're suddenly in a situation where unless we're really careful, we will smash the place up just by accident. And that's a brand new context for humans to be operating in and it calls into question how much of how we do life um, is still fit for purpose because you know the way we do our politics, the way we do our economics, the way we run our society it's all using um, techniques and methods and habits that we've honed over the millennia in an entirely different context when when the world was a big robust place So now suddenly we need to do quite a lot of reworking of of how we think about and how we do everything. And I'm optimistic because I think that it's possible, but it won't be possible if we pretend that um, just carrying on basically as usual with a couple of small changes around the edges will do the trick because it's pretty
0: clear that it won't. I mean it's definitely something interesting about your book possibly compared to some other publications around climate that have come out over the past couple of years and that you really do advocate that holistic approach, don't you? That we have to re-evaluate our values and think about things like sharing and almost these things we learn as children go back to some of those base questions about how we interact with each other.
5: Yeah, and it's interesting actually. The more, um, The more colleagues and experts I talk to in various different fields around energy, climate change, food security, you name it. It's interesting how often you get to the point after sort of half an hour's uh, informal discussion where people will say, you know what, at the end of the day, um, it probably all boils down to a values discussion. And I, I think um, there's very possibly uh, a lot a lot in that. So but one of the things I think I'd say is, you know, I, I've said that the, the challenge is that from a technical perspective, um, these problems are, are essentially solvable. So if you take climate change, for example, it's clear that we could transform today's energy supply. Um, and it's clear that, you know, um, the, with a mixture of solar power and emerging technologies for transport and storage and, and all sorts, it's, it's a doable problem. That wouldn't be enough for us because at the moment we are growing our energy supply at about 2.4 percent a year which is a factor of 10 every century. And if we're not very careful, we will just add all that solar power to our energy mix on top of all the fossil fuel. So I've seen some analyses of you know, uh, ways in which we can replace today's energy supply with renewable, with renewable energies and, and generate some efficiency uh, improvements to help us as well um, that I don't buy into because what they assume is that every time we have an efficiency improvement, we will bag all the savings from that Uh, and we don't do that humans don't do that and they assume that every time we uh, create a new energy supply that doesn't have fossil fuel uh, associated with it that will replace a fossil fuel energy supply but the evidence is that humans don't work like that whenever we've had a new energy supply in the past we've had it at least partially in addition to all the previously existing energy supplies and whenever we've had efficiency improvements, actually what we've done is we've increased our consumption even a bit more than the efficiency improvements. So the total burden on the planet has ended up going up, not down.
0: That's really interesting in that, in in a way, it's slightly set in opposition to what, for instance, somebody like Mary Robinson has been saying, which is, you know, if we make savings around energy, then they will also improve people's lives. And it's a win-win scenario. Um, I know you're optimistic about new ways of living but I think you're also quite keen to be clear right there's some sacrifices that we'll have to make or changes that might not be so easy that nevertheless need to happen. Yeah
5: so Mary Robinson for example yeah Mary Robinson is right that efficiency improvements can be used to improve the quality of our lives but and I'm not against efficiency improvements, but what I'm saying is that they are not enough on their own, and nor are any of the technological innovations that we can dream up enough on their own. We also have to have global agreements to cap our impact on the planet. And the the most pressing of of those is that we need to cap our fossil fuel emissions. The easiest way of capping them is to cap them at the point of extraction, and I think the easiest mechanic for doing that is a carbon price. Whether that's through cap and trade or, or whatever, we can argue about the details. But unless we unless we cap the emissions, uh, we can have all the efficiency improvements in the world, and they won't help us. But if we do cap the emissions, then the role of efficiency will be to uh, enable us to um, to live better. So, and overall, the the low carbon world, and I. You know, the the, the the more sustainable world generally is not um, it's not about humankind's taking a hit in the quality of our life. It's absolutely opposite from that. It's an opportunity to re-engineer how we live in all kinds of ways, actually to focus more on different kinds of metrics, to focus more on the quality of our lives, to ditch the things that don't actually add value to us. Um, and whilst we're doing that to improve um, our stewardship of the planet.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit more in terms of what individuals can do because I think often when we talk about climate change, you know, readers or perhaps people listening will know these problems are so vast and climate change is this high project that I, I can't maybe grasp in relation to my own life. And you're very keen to have people do things both practically and in that kind of holistic shift we spoke about within their own lives to address it. I think
5: it's a very fair question for people to ask when all the when the challenges we're facing are so global and it's all so systemic and we've got such rebound effects um it would be easy to assume that well uh you know there's nothing that an individual can do and even if there was you know we could think of a we can each think of ourselves as just one seven and a half billionth of the pro- uh, of the whole problem and so we we feel it's easy to feel like a bit of a speck um you know, whose actions might be insignificant, but actually I think uh, there is plenty that all of us can do. The way we need to think about it is we need to ask ourselves the question, what can I do to be pushing for the conditions to be right for the system change that we need to see to be possible? And in terms of what that takes us to in, in terms of our own actions, there are two sides to it. The first is about how we live our lives and the personal impacts that we have. So that's about cutting your carbon footprint, for example. And we can talk about that more if you like. Um, And the other angle, the other part of it is what other ways can I influence the whole system? So that might be about, it might start with how do I vote? But it might move from that into um, how do I influence my politicians in advance of elections so they know that I'm serious about this stuff. But it might be other things as well. It might be what can I do to create... Um, a culture in which truth is really valued. Well, that might be about insisting on truth from your politicians, it might be about choosing your media sources really carefully, asking yourselves, does this media source give me the best version of the truth that they can? And if not, switching. Uh, And it might be about uh, what we take to the workplace, And how we push for sustainability in the workplace. It might even be about in our down the pub or with our friends and family. You know, it's about all the situations in which we can uh, be pushing for uh, the cultural change, the cultural and political change that we need in order for the kinds of global deals that we need um, to get on top of our climate change impacts to be possible.
0: I mean, just here in London, and we've spoken a bit about the geographical aspect of um, climate change, where the effects are and and who creates it. But just focusing here on the UK, I mean, we've had the school strike, we've got Extinction Rebellion, who have been stopping traffic around here in Westminster. And you do say, with due seriousness and caution, that there might be a cause to take to the streets over this.
5: Yeah, I think we're at a very interesting moment right now, because on the one hand, I think that the science is getting scarier than ever. So the IPCC's 1.5 report is telling us very starkly that we really have to have 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is very, very risky. And it's not just climate change. Some of the latest science on insect populations, for example, should be really worrying us, and I think we should get a little flutter of adrenaline when you get up in the morning um, in the UK in February and it feels positively warm. You know, we, that should be worrying to us. That's, that should feel weird and a bit creepy. And we should be using it as something that, um, that, that spurs us to action. So on the one hand, you know, there's cause for us to start feeling really alarmed, I think. But on the other hand, I, in some ways, I feel more optimistic than I've felt um, over the last decade because I think the signs that human, that human beings are finally waking up properly to the problem are certainly greater than they've ever been. And if you look at what, how systems change, um, very often systems have uh, reinforcing mechanisms within them that um, keep them running as they are. You try and um, perturb them in some way, and they have ways in which that they can just bring themselves back to normal. And so the system feels unmovable. But if you push and push and push, what you find is sometimes you see a, a little crack in the system, and then it might be a very small space of time, uh, a very small time from that, uh, until the whole thing changes. And if you look around now and you see, for example, the traction that the Green New Deal is getting in the. US. And as you say, Extinction Rebellion, um, doing such a thoughtful and careful job of stopping the traffic in London and being polite with the police and being polite to everyone whose uh, lives are disrupted by it, but just saying, look, I'm really sorry, we have to do this because we have to insist on a better world. And the school kids going on strike, insisting on a a better world, and the traction that Greta Thunberg has had, the 16-year-old, uh, a schoolgirl who's gone off to Davos and told everybody um, there that, you know, human greed is, is, is part of the problem and so on. And you look at, uh, we've even got in the UK, we've got at least one or two MPs who I re- would regard as broadly speaking Anthropocene fit in the way that they're, they're conducting themselves. So I, I do see some signs of hope, which make me think, you know what, if we all push hard now, uh, we really might get the system change that we need.
0: So, Mike, if there's one set of values maybe that you'd want listeners to take away from all of this, what would that be?
5: So, well, it's, it's very simple, and luckily these values are things that it's possible to consciously develop, and they are they're, they're incredibly simple. So the first is that we need to uh, respect each other. So we need to treat all humans with Uh, equal respect, and as if they have equal value, uh, equal inherent value as human beings. And the second is that we need to also respect all the other species on the planet, not just as servants of humanity, but also for their own right, in their own right as, as species. And the third thing is that we need to increase our respect for truth, for its own sake regardless of whether or not it's convenient to us or whether it furthers the arguments we're trying to make.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues That's
2: all for this week. Thank you very much for listening um, to our guest, Mike Berners-Lee there, interviewed by Stephanie Boland. Thanks also to Steve Bloomfield and Samir Rahim, who you heard from earlier here in the heart of Westminster. Stephanie Boland was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, then please do leave us a rating and review, which really does help. We'll see you next week and goodbye. (music)